Hello and welcome to episode 215 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, I've got Tony here with me today. Hey T, how's it going? Going well, thank you very much. Great. Well, um, we actually have a guest on this week, but uh, you know, if you want to stick uh, stick until the end, uh, Tony and I are going to be rambling about uh, what we some thoughts around uh, Refinitive and Symphony. So if if you do want to stick on stick around for that, um, do wait till the end because it's going to be a little bit of a long episode today. So maybe T, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about our guest this week? Yeah. So just quickly, uh, Bill Murphy. If you've been listening to the podcast for a long time. You've definitely heard Bill speak before. Uh, he's the former uh, chief technology and head of innovation at Blackstone. Um, he's now at a company called Cresting Wave. But Bill's, oh, I've always thought Bill's one of the best thinkers in the business. Like I really just enjoy his conversations because he he's passionate about innovation, but he's always so keen to talk about technical debt and you know uh, tech sprawl and real challenges that technologists face when implementing and going to the public cloud as we talked about the last time he was on he gives real honest uh, insightful answers so i thought it was a really good answer uh, really good conversation as always and being on so we'll just kick it over to him right now and like shen said if you want to stay on uh we'll we'll ramble on at the end all right and now i'm joined by someone who if you're a fan of the waters wavelength podcast does not need an introduction um for the fifth time on the show Bill Murphy, uh, formerly of Blackstone, now with Cresting Wave. Bill, thanks again for joining us. Always appreciate having you on. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, thanks, uh, Tony. And uh, yeah, my five timers club. You know, I mean, I, I want a, I want a lot of swag here on, yeah. on the waters. Once you get to ten, once you get to ten, oh, then, okay, then that's, right, when, uh, that's when the benefits really work kick at it. in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we've had Bill on. If you've been listening to his podcasts. Um, he was previously with Blackstone uh, for almost a decade, uh, CTO and head of innovations. Uh, and it was funny because I was going going back and looking at some of our, uh, an old profile that we wrote of you, uh, TBM wrote of you in uh, 2012. And he said, uh, so you had left Capital IQ where you, you were founding CTO. You were there for over a decade. Um, and you told Tim this about your move uh, from uh, Cap IQ to Blackstone. He said, uh, the first reaction was amazement over Blackstone's reputation, which was good. Um, the second was, wow, that's different. And when you said, yeah, you know, I'm uh, working with this company, uh, Cresting Wave, I was like, wow, that's quite different than uh, <laughs> you know, working at uh, Blackstone. But the, the Cliff's notes of it is Cresting Wave connects um, innovative young companies uh, with forward thinking technology leaders. But Bill, you know, before we get into kind of some of the challenge, the, the topic for today is going to be pain of adopting new innovations for CIOs. Why don't you tell a little bit about uh, this this uh, next uh, piece of your career here? Sure. Uh, and, th you know, thanks for having me on. And, and the the growth uh, always comes from different. So I guess that's um, hopefully that's good because I, you know, I definitely feel going from Capital IQ to Blackstone was different and enabled so much personal growth in that time. You know, I, I, I look back and, and think of all the things I was worried about then and, and how they're different now. And hopefully moving to Cresting Wave, we'll be able to kind of uh, use a lot of the skills that I developed, but also grow personally and do something different. So um, certainly a little bit of a turn, but uh, but I'm really excited about it. And like you said, it's, it's all about uh, connecting uh, a tech leadership community um, with innovations in a way that helps both sides. Uh, you know, the traditional problem, 
and and I'm sure I'm biased on this, but I think tech leaders have never had it harder. Uh, the the demands are just dramatic. The the you've got to be an amazing talent uh, talent scout, talent builder, manage your team well, uh, manage your team well in a labor market where they're all really uh, desired by others. You also have to manage your colleagues at your firm and understand the strategy of the firm, everything that's trying to happen, and then apply a technology strategy in order to do that. You have execution challenges. You've basically got to hold up the world. We saw in the pandemic how valuable making the right technology infrastructure investments was, and and uh, you know that's a tech leader's job. So all of that is like the blocking and tackling, but that sounds like a pretty difficult thing. And then, oh, by the way, uh, innovation is never moving as fast. There's tens of thousands of companies launching every year that that potentially can solve your key problems. And uh, stay on top of all that too. You know, good luck. Uh, yeah. So you know, it was a number. A big part of my job was trying to stay ahead of the game uh, for the last 20 years as a CTO. And it just felt like I was f falling further and further behind. So I was always looking for partners to bring me stuff that is going to help solve my my problems. Um, Cresting Wave was, was, had sold into us at Blackstone and I developed a good relationship and have joined the firm now in order to take it to the next level. And what we're doing is meeting with tech leaders, understanding their needs, sort of you know informal advice slash uh, cataloging of everything that they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, and then we take that knowledge, we put it, we database it, we have it at, at our fingertips, and then we match that to innovations that we think are uh, groundbreaking and can uh, can be used by these kind of forward-thinking tech leaders to solve those key problems. So think about us as like an innovation scout connecting your problems of your tech leader to great innovations that are coming out of uh, you know VC VC-funded startups and otherwise. So um, I'm excited because it brings together my experience as an entrepreneur at Capital IQ, uh, my experience as a tech buyer at Blackstone. And then we also did strategic investing at Blackstone. So I have the investor lens. So I think those are the three core lenses of who benefits from going uh, from yeah. bringing great innovations to market. So I hope I can bring those three perspectives and deliver something that we think is uh, differentiated in the market and helping helping everybody in that in that ecosystem. Sure. So before we get into like maybe some of the pain points uh, that firms are feeling beyond COVID, you know, that, that just longer term kind of maybe things. What did work from so it's funny because uh, we were talking about this, but I think in February it was announced that you'd be uh, leaving Blackstone. I think you left at the end of March, if I have my timelines correct. And so you weren't really in the day to day of it uh, the way that many other uh, CTOs were. So maybe from talking with colleagues and then also, though, in this new thing, as you're kind of talking with other uh, uh, tech professionals around the industry, what did work um, yeah. for those successful firms as they made this transition? Well, I think it's really a testament to both like innovations, like everyone's using Zoom and we're on Teams now and 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 other cloud uh, enabled technologies, the the networking that's available to us all so we can do the job. It's really, in a, we haven't spent enough time as a country like appreciating the tremendous uh, uh, capabilities that have been put in place and sort of go unnoticed. Imagine I think that's, just five years ago, what, what this would have been like five years totally, ago. Totally, five years ago, we may have had a fighting chance, but think about 10 years ago, no way, or, or 20, we would have all been sitting twiddling our thumbs and we can basically be as productive, if not more in some cases, 
um, because of these technologies. So the people that were ahead of it um, benefited, right? Yeah. Now, it was pretty easy in a lot of cases for people to catch up because there were people who were on their back foot. They, were, they went into a sprint. And the, the ability to, to get stuff adopted in such a short amount of time speaks to some of the problems that the tech leaders have normally, but also what a motivated workforce can do who sort of have to change. Because yeah. my biggest struggle in my career, and I probably could have done this better and I got to keep learning, is, is helping people learn how to change and introducing change to them. If you're the one that's bringing the innovation, it's like, you've got to, you know, Tony, you got to do things differently. You have to learn this. Everybody hates that, right? It's just, you know, people like to go about their life in the same way all the time, generally. Sure. So, uh, so bringing change is always met with resistance. And that makes the tech leader's job like incredibly, incredibly difficult. So even if they bring a solution, you know, it's like if you bring a fish to a horse to water, uh, but you can't make them drink. A lot of times that's what you feel. So watching this pandemic happen where it was the only way for for people to be productive was to learn. And then people hopefully coming out of this with a newfound uh, respect for tech and also a newfound respect for their own ability to change and use tech more effectively. At least that's my optimistic side is saying, hopefully we learn something as a, as a group and that, you know, future iterations of tech change can be a little bit easier because we've all gone through this collective. And, you know, Satya Nadella, the, the, the CEO of, um, of Microsoft said, I think, you know, he said like three years worth of tech change in three months, uh, and I really believe that um, for sure. What's, so what's the, what's the danger for those that were playing catch up that maybe didn't have their pieces and they are kind of just trying to play that game of catch up? There has to be a danger also, though, of implementing, of making kind of rash decisions that don't necessarily fit into. We always talk about the importance of having a three year, five year plan. Yes, you do have to react. But is there kind of certain inherent dangers in those knee jerk reactions that you think the industry might? So right now everybody's like, yeah, we did okay as an industry. This worked pretty right. well. Right. Two years from now we're saying, oh my god, we, you know, we the, the sprawl, the the tech sprawl is ridiculous now, and we're having so many. There are so many vulnerabilities for cybersecurity points, right. stuff like that. Maybe. Yeah, I think that um, luckily most of the innovations that people had to do in order to do remote work were right at the cusp of like general availability already. And we really benefited from the fact that some pretty great companies are the ones that are are curating this. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Zoom did an amazing job getting scale and they have the cloud to thank for that, too. And, you know, Microsoft as well benefited from this and the, the major tech players. So I think that you're probably right um, on you wouldn't want to knee jerk. Uh, business solutions. Um, but luckily, a lot of this like remote access stuff had had gotten to the point where it's close enough to commodity that even though adopting it quickly, it still wasn't like a knee-jerk decision. I think people just accelerated change that they knew was coming. But now what we need to do is not not get into this like knee-jerk type of decision-making for the future. You want to make, make well-considered long-term decisions, and then you want to implement them fast. Yeah. Uh, let's not think that we have to accelerate the decision making too, um, uh, and and make bad decisions. So, you know, we'd written an article. And we talked. Uh, Weisha and I have talked a little bit about um, this idea of moonshot projects, longer term, really transformative projects inside of banks, asset managers, what have you. 
and how those projects have been put on the back burner um, in favor. You know, we spoke with people from Deutsche Bank, I think it was BNY, uh, Nomura, and I'm saying, you know, yeah, we're, we're focusing more on kind of the day to day and some of these other more experimental are, are taking a back seat. Where do you kind of fall as far as how firms need to continue to keep their eye on we're, we're, we're working on these big projects for a reason. This isn't right. just experimenting. This is necessary. And, you know, because the one thing that I that I think is, as you were talking about, you know, people are become more comfortable with public cloud, you know, with AWS, Azure, um, GCP, um, APIs, you know, to deliver information on the back end, becoming more and more widely adopted, open source tools, more and more widely adopted. So I feel that these moonshot projects are still happening, but it's being left more to the vendors and then the banks, the the savvy ones are incorporating their expertise. And it's kind of this kind of give and take, but it's not this proprietary, we're building the moonshot project. It's no, no, you go out, you build this cutting edge, you know, natural language processing uh, model that that can sift through all these documents and everything like that to give us, you know, to to focus our insights. How do right. you fall on this kind of? Yeah, idea? I guess like, well, let's unpack it a little bit. First, I think that the, um, I think we continue to have an industry-wide problem in terms of accounting for technology innovation and moonshots. Moon and because of, for whatever case, it just rolls up to the normal expense line in most people's budgets and sure. such. They, they don't realize that this is an investment, right? Like when you put a new, um, a new, wing on your house or something, or you buy, you know, you do new construction, you're, you're not suddenly like, oh, well, this year I spent uh, $500,000 to live, you know, like, no, you spent $400,000 building a house and $100,000 to live. And that house has a value that's going to be in perpetuity, right? So um, the fact that we, we do, I think, a poor job explaining the value of the moonshots over a long period. Um, and you say we, do you mean the, the technologists or the industry? I think it's both. I think it's the technologists. It's hard to envision like with a house, you know, you're going to get to live in it. So it's easy to talk about the value there. Um, for some of these moonshots, the value is very much like undefined. We you're, you're doing it because you believe there will be a value, but because you can't put a specific dollar figure to it, it's this kind of vague thing right and then the the you know the accountants of the world are counting the, the the pennies and they're like well tell me how much it's going to benefit and the technology leader is very reluctant to to give a number because they can't really quantify it yet and you get into this like very negative yeah. loop of justification to the point where all the moonshots get canceled so yeah. i think that you know some of the moonshots probably shouldn't have been on the 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 docket uh, as they were and those those probably should be canceled so it's casting a, a deeper uh, or brighter light on it. But I think that for us to, you know, were they really strategic if they can be canceled in a pandemic? I mean, there's reasons like if they required people to be in the same physical room and you felt like that was a critical success factor to getting the moonshot done, I totally get delay it, right? Take yeah. six months and come back and, and hit it hard once you can do that. But for the most part, like the changing our strategic bend uh, permanently because we need to save dollars this year seems like a bad bet for most of these companies that will eventually come home to roost. Now, the competing aspect, which I think you're, you, which you mentioned in your question, is like vendors are doing this faster and better than they ever have before. So that's what's saving 
and they can industry. deliver that information more easily than in the past, right? Totally. They can like deliver the, that technology. Yeah, totally. The public cloud, like I remember when we founded Capital IQ, like we needed to go get, we had to go get co-location space. Then you needed to build your disk array. Then you need to do, and every one of those things is like a hundred times harder than it is today. Um, so because it's easier to deliver moonshots, that's like a compensating control for this like lack of forward thinking by the by industries about tech. And uh, you see the, the people that are most successful are the ones that are always thinking forward. Right. And, uh, you know, you, you always quote the same big tech giants, but, you know, they, they are quoted for a reason. Like Amazon is making major bets for the future. And I still remember those articles in 2002 about Amazon building a supply chain and taking on all their debt and doing all of that and building all this tech. Why are they doing it? They're stupid. Their their quarterly results struggle. And, you know, who's laughing now 20 years later? Um, So I think that like every firm needs to better account for the innovations that they're that the the moonshots that they're taking on and then try to better measure the the value that will be created because. These are the things that are going to prevent you from being obsolete five and ten years from now. It seems also it's it's you're seeing a shift. So obviously the vendor community has been moving to the cloud a lot uh, quicker yep. than you know than we've had we, last time you were on. We talked about the challenges of public cloud adoption of, of cloud adoption. You know how when you were moderating the panel, I think at Waters USA would have been in December maybe. Um, Yes, the audience like uh, on Slido, like how many, where are you in your cloud migration process? And people, the majority were only 25% um, into their process there. And, but we're also seeing like, you know, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not connecting the dots correctly, but you have like a company like Refinitive, you know, moving to this uh, workspace platform, kind of uh, moving away from those traditional trading systems of ICON to more workflow collaboration tools. You have um, trading technologies doing away with XTrader, moving to a SaaS delivered TT platform, uh, HPR uh, uh, moving to the cloud when it was this hardcore hardware vendor. It seems that that's kind of where everybody's going now. So if you aren't there, I, I guess the question I'm asking is, when do you risk really falling behind? Because you have the vendor community that's right. that is playing catch up pretty that that is moving fast and just tearing the bandit off, saying these legacy platforms we have, screw it, we're going with these new things in the future. Do you not have to, as a bank, as a asset manager, uh, CTO, do you not actually have to be that innovative with your internal because the vendor community is doing such a good job, or am I way overstating that? Well, I think that. Yeah, the devil's in the details. So like the commodity stuff, you're definitely better off putting together a series of vendor solutions and then tying them together right so that you don't, you know, 25 years ago, banks were building way more soup to nuts uh, suites of software than they are today for with good reason, right? They can take advantage of all these other capabilities. So I think that that's, um, that's right. I guess the way to think about it is, and this is different across financial services, is that there are some business models that are in full uh, attack from from disruptors. And then there are other ones that are incredibly resilient from disruptors, whether that's because of market dynamics, because of the use cases are not really technology enabled yet, and that sort of thing. And based upon where you are in that spectrum, you should be either freaked out (laughs) that, you know, that robo 
trading or you know some of the new wealth management platforms or otherwise are going to eat our lunch or um, you know I certainly uh, in the private investing space it's uh, you know we're still early days of, of tech disruption so there's less concern on big transaction type of automation um, yeah. I still think that's that's pretty far far away so um, I guess your your level of nervousness is should be directly correlated to that for sure. <laughs> Let me ask you this then. So for you personally, when you talk about new innovations and you're and now uh, with Crestwave, you're, you're, you're looking at different companies and then you're at the kind of established companies making these introductions. What for you is for Bill Murphy when you're kind of either reading um, in books or in Waters Technology, uh, when you're of kind of reading about this stuff, uh, what interests you the most when it comes when we're talking about innovation right now you know it's certainly cloud you know cloud and cyber are the two major thrusts of pure technology um change that it continues everything it kind of over yeah it overruns everything right and then with successful adoption of new uh, new kind of business models for for technology for for development the promise is that there's going to be a lot more velocity so that all the benefits don't just roll up to the to a better IT infrastructure they roll up to better business systems and so on i think we're still early days on that you know even all of the benefits that that of of some of these vendors moving to the cloud in specific fintech i don't think that the that the capabilities have progressed nearly as as much as they will um, in the future Why is One, that? I just don't like they're they're lugging around a lot of technical debt, you know, these 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 vendors. Financial services got the a bad draw in that financial services was the most technical technical developed industry in in nineteen ninety-eight. And then you had this seismic shift to web, and then you had this seismic shift to pub public cloud, and you know, you're just you're you're carrying around a lot of debt from way old systems that are still being carried today. And, yeah. you know, the industries that were pretty much, you know, greenfield in terms of technology enablement before those seismic shift, they have it way easier. They can just start from scratch yeah. and and be ready to go. So uh, there are vendors, though, that are well funded that are trying to rethink a lot of these fintech um, uh, fintech use cases and. Um, hopefully, they'll be able to bring kind of the the true born in the born in the cloud uh, type of capabilities to those use cases. And um, but it's a hard decision for any of these incumbents to make to like let's blow up our whole business and start yeah. from scratch and rebuild. So that's why you 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 tend to see these small companies come up and start to nip at their heels. And well, what's the old saying that for CTO? You never get fired for implementing an IBM system. You do get fired if you're like, listen, I got this really cool idea, this really cool company, and that's you know that it always felt that like banks were risk averse. Fair enough. I do think that that's changing to some degree yeah. in a positive way. Um, I I always looked at, and this is how we're evaluating clients because we're we're evaluating clients to come into the Cresting Wave portfolio with a very you know with a high bar because our community relies on us to to make sure that we're not recommending things that are you know irrelevant or you know not ready for prime time so that high bar uh, a large part of that high bar is ability to innovate in the future i think too too often in the past and this is changing 
to some degree, but I think it could change even more, is that the CTOs were, or the decision makers for any technology purchase, were only making the decision on what can it do today. And when that when that's true, you buy IBM or whatever the equivalent is sure. uh, for, for the given use case, because you're like, okay, I won't get fired and it'll meet most of my needs right now. But what you need to be thinking about is, I you're, it's basically like making an investment. I believe company X, technology Y, will be able to meet more of my needs tomorrow than it has today. And because I believe in the team and I believe in the methodology and I believe in the architecture so that I can grow my technology stack with that company. And the, the best technology leaders are doing that. They're partnering with small companies and that's how they stay ahead. Because if you, uh, you know, it's really funny. One of my biggest regrets was 2000, 2000, we were starting Capital IQ. It was like you, me, and the dog, basically uh, five of us building the first version. And I, and a new thing called .NET was coming out from Microsoft, but it was in beta. And I was like, oh, well, I can't trust beta software. I'm going to yeah. be serving clients. You know how many clients we had? We had like three clients. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I went with the old version, ASP, you might remember. Yeah. And we built the first two or three versions of Capital IQ in ASP. And then in 2004, 2003, we had to cut everything over to .NET. And I had to repay all that technical debt. And it was like such a dumb decision because if I had just bet on Microsoft in 2000, the future of .NET, sure. I would have saved myself so much time. Um, so I try to kind of learn from that lesson of like, let's not be too risk averse and make, make decisions that are going to hurt us in the, in the future. How do you make that? So, so looking at how you would have made that decision back then versus today, how do you go about that? I guess that research of it, you know, is it, is, has that con has the research of these decisions? Do I go with .NET? Do I, you know, is the Julia programming language something I should be, you know, experimenting with something like that? How are those conversations happening for CTOs today? And maybe where where is it still lacking? Where is that process? Yeah, totally. Still and challenge? Absolutely. And you need access, right? And I think we really benefited at Blackstone from having great access to these companies, given the place that Blackstone is in the world and how and how, what a great company it is. So we were able to get access. But most of these technology leaders don't have the time and don't have the access to do deep dives to assess whether that's whether it's good enough or not. You can't rely on like junior engineering manager who gets excited about some new programming language. Usually that's a disaster because um, they haven't met the company. They haven't met the founder. They haven't thought through the funding of the company and all of that. So, um, it's, you know, you teed me up for that. I don't even think you meant to uh, because that's the value that Cresting Wave is trying to bring is like, we're going to do a lot of that diligence for you. So uh, you're not God, put in a bad marketing now. I know. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I have to, you know, you have to hire you. Now. <laughs> there you go. So, but you know what I mean? Like that's like, it's, it, it, there's a lot that goes into vetting this technology that, so you have to be thinking about these small companies. You're not buying their technology. You're investing in that company. And would you put your own money in that company is always a great question to ask because, you know, when you, when a, a junior uh, database person comes up and says, I got a new technology, okay, would you put your own money into that? And then they like freak out a little bit and say, well, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. That usually means they don't have conviction that it yeah. really is something, it, it, instead they just think it's a cool thing that they want to try and they, you know, they haven't thought through the future ramifications of it, so. Well, 
and just just wonder, do you have a hard stop at? No, no. Okay, let's keep going. Um, so, so then to take that and compare it to something, to, so tech, let's talk technical debt and innovation at the the innovation exchange, the event that we recently had. Uh, Bill was a moderator on an ESG panel. I thought it went well. Um, there was another panel was talking about technical debt with machine learning. Okay, so as more and more um, banks, I think they talk a big game about using machine learning right now. Um, it, early it's, days, it's though. Mark, it's very it's early very days. Very early days. Hundred percent. So maybe if we just even almost dumb it down just to AI and like, because I know that you've have never been a huge fan of RPA because of the technical debt that can be associated with that. You're yep. constantly having to re-engineer it. You know, it's constantly having to be tweaked, and then you're spending more time and money on it in the long run than if you just would have really tried to adjust address the problem from an engineering standpoint 100%. from the very beginning yep. where do you what if if you're kind of looking if you're talking to an RCTO about their use of internally um building machine learning models let's say for research analytics kind of stuff like that right what are the technical debt what are the unforeseen technical debt issues that that you're finding that firms are facing when it comes to specifically machine learning or yeah AI? great great question and you know and i'm going to lump data analysis in there because this is a sure. big uh i think this is a, a a pending problem for a lot of folks like you said a lot of it's marketing they haven't done that much yet so they haven't yeah. built up so much technical debt today however the this is long-term short-term thinking again a lot of people keep saying, I just want to experiment. I just want to do it. I want to do it fast. I'm going to hire a data scientist. I'm going to, and they're building these non-connected data warehouses. And then they're using, you know, good data science to come up with, um, to make better decisions, right? But they're not making those decisions typically in a repeatable way that's going to be something that they can rely yeah. on for 10 years. So they're doing a lot of data analysis. They're doing a lot of great data science. They're not doing a lot of engineering of solutions on top of that data science to make them repeatable. And it's actually, it's, and there's also significant risks as it relates to data governance, data security, um, data quality. If the data is coming into the, you know, if, the, if you buy bad gasoline, your car might not work. It doesn't mean that the car sucks. It just means yeah. that your fuel is bad. So, uh, so you need to ensure data quality. You need to ensure that the code doesn't get, you know, bastardized over time to change your model. And then you've got to make sure that it gets to production and it runs in a repeatable way, uh, in a scalable way. So um, we're actually looking at a number of these solutions now. In the last two days, I've met like four or five different companies that are doing different pieces of that. So I think it's an area for quick for a lot of innovation coming. Um, but you need to, I do not believe that the, completely federated data science approach is one that is going to wind up being um, being the right one. I think it's going to have to be central governance, federated, uh, federated business data analysis, uh, but like pointing back to the central data analysis factory that's like, you know, you, everyone can create their own concept car. But when you got to make 10,000 of them, it has to go back to a factory where people know how to produce cars in mass, I guess would be the best metaphor that I can come up with. And so then does that help, again, to kind of bring back this whole idea of using the vendor community in this space? You know, we've talked also about the talent gap, the, and especially when we're talking about data science uh, and engineers and just 
banks having to compete with the likes of Amazon, with Google, stuff like that. It would seem to me that there is more and more, as banks or as as any kind of firm, any financial firm, they they need to get involved in this at a high level on the data analysis, right? And yep. so you can build that internally or you can buy that externally. The talent gap is huge. And then even you have somebody come in, builds a, you know, starts, you know, coming up with a really cool new model, whatever it is, it doesn't mean that person's gonna stay with you. And then you have so much key man risk um, involved in it. So do you, as data analysis becomes more and more, do you kind of see this where you almost have to lean on your vendor community more, or am I once again overstating? Uh, just maybe being too pedantic, too blunt with that. Well, I think that the the the, the tool side, you're going to rely on your on your um, your community, your vendor community mostly. So sure. I think that people who are building their own, uh, like Netflix, essentially built their DevOps you know, 10 years ago when no one else was thinking about it and their team is amazing and they've built this amazing stack. Now, everybody has access to those same type of tools through the vendor community. For people to go back and try to replicate what Netflix did now is is crazy, right? So if any of the, if any of the business people are listening to technology leaders pitch that type of uh, investment, they should probably run for the hills, right? But on the flip side, the data analysis piece of, you know, connecting the use of data to your business, I think that's very difficult to outsource. And that's where people should be building capabilities in-house um, and, and trying to make that repeatable. Uh, but Can they you have give to- an example from your career where, where something like that, where, where there was kind of some success there? Well, you know, I, I was gonna mention, I thought, I thought, I think Capital One has done a really good job from the, the outside looking in, but speaking to knowing some people there, in terms of like going all in with technology transformation and the use of data in a way that, you know, overpowering level of investment mm -hmm. and a belief from the top of the company down that they have to, like, this is the way forward. So I think that that's like the, I think Two Sigma does a great job of really embracing technology and data in everything that they do. And I guess the common thread to this, to, to what makes this successful is a belief from the top and a cultural, uh, you know, and then fanning that belief out culturally such that, you know, they really commit as a company to the changes that they need to make in order to make this part of the DNA. And everybody who's trying to do it as window dressing and marketing, uh, you know, is destined to fail probably or just have suboptimal um, adoption of this. One thing I also wanted to touch on you with last time we did the podcast, we were doing it from what was your brand new, uh, you know, technology offices, Google, Amazon inspired, uh, really cool layout that you guys had there, had over beers, very nice. Um, that office space and kind of those decisions now. Do you see there being a change um, as because Wall Street especially has always been. You're at your desk at 8.30. You're leaving your desk at 6.30. You know, you're wearing suit, tie, dress, whatever it is. Um, technologists have always been a little bit more easygoing about it. As we've, as companies have shown that they can work remotely without that much disruption, yep. what are going to be those, 
you know, there's going to be a push to be like, I want to work. I'm a top tier engineer. I want to, I want to work remote. I want to pick my own hours. Well, we were, we were, I was already feeling that like we yeah. lost people specifically because our culture was not, was not as, you know, um, susceptible to like complete remote. And then there's the companies that don't even have offices and they're the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Right. So I do think that the, the pandemic has shown, uh, that, this is a good example where the financials and the, what the tech people want actually lines up um, because working from home is actually more uh, financially advantageous for the firms too, right? That office space, you know, costs money and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So I do think that it's opened the eyes of people that like it's what, what's possible before, um, before COVID, you know, it's just viewed differently than what was, what's possible now. And, and, and that's a good that's a good path because the other piece that it unlocks is finding great technical talent was was at its peak when you know in February and it's still hard. So being able to look for it worldwide uh, in a way that is a little bit more in uh, kind of in tune with the with the culture of your existing team um, gives you a bigger a bigger pond to fish in for for great people. So I I do think that 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 it will continue and it'll be interesting to see because I'm sure there'll be there'll be firms on all sides of this where some people are like insisting that everybody comes back yep. and some other ones are saying you know we'll, we'll be virtual forever and like it'll, it'll be great to, to watch and see who wins. I've only listened into a scrum and stuff like that but obviously you know Global companies have been, you know, working, you know, with having Zoom calls and stuff like that. Totally. You know, with India, UK, you know, New York, all all chiming in and stuff like that. So that's been going on. But where's the risk of, you know, we we were loosening up our culture, you know, but everybody, we, I love going, I love going into the office. I yep. really, really do. Um, well, we're all we're all sort of like using the relationships we had pre-COVID right now. So yeah. it's easier, you know, we've met many times in person, right? Um, if it was a first time meeting doing this and it was only over Zoom, it's harder. Yeah. Um, we've had a relationship to draw upon. So I do think that it'll degrade if there's no in-person. So it's a question of how do you craft the right uh, combination of remote and in-person? And then how do you staff the, or how do you keep the office space such that you do that in an economical way? Because ideally, yeah. you know, if, if, if people could have three days in the office and two at home or the vice versa, that's probably the right answer. But then yeah. you're saying to yourself, do I really want to be able to bring my entire staff in on Monday and Wednesday and pay for the office space that's going to be vacant five days of the week? <laughs> exactly. That's going to be a hard sell to a lot of the CFOs out there. So uh, I think that's, the, uh, that's what people will need to solve. But the scale of remote is important. I think like being fully remote or like fully remote enabled is a very important Rubicon to, to cross because then the firm sets that up to succeed. So mm -hmm. when bad things happen or when like, I want to dip my toe in, so I'm going to let four people do it in, in, you know, in the Philippines or something. And then, and then they don't really feel like part of the team because 98% of the team is, is having beers in the office and feeling connected. So sure. it's like, there's certainly a critical mass that you need to have both in and out of the office such that, uh, you know, such that the culture adapts to, to making everybody feel like part of the team. Yeah. So just to wrap up, let's do a, 
quick hitter on just some innovation technologies, okay? Uh, on some kind of topics of innovation, um, just, to, just to get your thoughts on it. Um, let's start with blockchain. Blockchain, you know, is it a <laughs> I hammer? Have been, I have been a blockchain uh, negative. I've been negative on blockchain <laughs> for eight years, and I'm very excited that I, have, I am being proven correct. I have still not seen good use of blockchain um, outside of Bitcoin. It is... Uh, it is a solution searching for a problem. You've heard all these tidbits. So I think that we will continue to see lots of uh, noise, but no, no, uh, no real results from, from blockchain. The ones that do kind of, there are so many projects, yeah, we have this blockchain. It's like, but when you actually look at it, it's not a blockchain. It, it's this kind of scaled down you know, thing, but it's- Just a database. It's yeah. just a database. The only reason you need blockchain is when you have truly- uh, anonymous transactions that need to be trusted in a way that that you know and and that can enable that there just aren't that many of those use cases in the world i did all kinds of analysis on this to try to find i didn't want to feel like i was behind the times and i did i looked up and down industries trying to figure figure out where this could be useful and i i just had I haven't been able to find it so i, I could be proved wrong but um i'm going to still take the uh Take that bet any day. Sounds good. Uh, you did a panel on ESG. Uh, a lot of people love talking about ESG now. It's 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 get you good headlines. It's but there is value there. You know there there's plenty of uh, academic papers that show that you know that ESG strategies can deliver alpha. What's your take on ESG, especially after listening to the panel, listening to Mike and them uh, uh, talk about how they're incorporating ESG? Yeah, I think it's still. Uh still unclear and and I think Mike said this about you know the testing that they had done like it's still it's it's correlated taking ESG ser seriously is correlated to better results but we we still have not proven causation at all yeah. and you could argue that some of the better results as driven by the stock price is just because demand is such that it's driving up the price you know um, I'm yeah demand for the stock of socially responsible companies is higher um, and you know is that is that really going to result in revenue and profits and all the fundamental aspects of that company being better? The jury is still out. Um, so I think that that uh, we'll see. Uh, but you know, it's that more people are paying attention to these types of things and more companies are taking it seriously. But um, I'm not sure that the stock market is going to be the thing that winds up driving us to to better ESG in the future. But it's probably more like you know. The, the cultural changes of people and governmental regulations and other things that are going to push us. And then, you know, the companies that are able to to succeed with those cultural and government aspects are probably going to also, um, you know, score better on the ESG score. So correlation causation, I would uh, I'd be thinking through that. This week, we're going to publish a story uh, looking at quantum computing looking at how some banks are, you know, still actively chasing after it. Some are, there's a little bit of disillusionment because it's, it's, it's still not here. It's still, you know, it's still, we're talking about, but to me, quantum computing does seem different than blockchain. Quantum computing yes. is truly a, a, a revolution that you have to keep an eye on, you know, even yes. if you're not fully actively involved. What's your take on QC? Yeah. So I've spent a bunch, <laughs> I spent a bunch of time with like the, uh, some people who are very respected members of quantum computing, and I, I've never felt stupider in my life than when I'm trying to understand quantum computing, but I'll give it a shot. The, uh, it's all about the problems that you're trying to solve. 
So s problems that rely on like simulation across many possibilities, quantum computers can be like revolutionary. But when I brought the question to this guy, who was, I forget his name, but he was uh, one of the foremost experts or something. He laughed, you know, sort of laughed and said, oh, I forget I'm talking to engineers, ha, 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 you know, like thinking that we're, we're terrible or something. And, and my point was that like a lot of the, most of the problems that we're solving with technology today are not what quantum's good at. It's like connecting workflows and processes and making things more efficient and those sorts of things. So I think that like quantum computing can be revolutionary in the right circumstances. And I think that the, uh, sometimes the marketing is just like, it's gonna change everything tomorrow. And that's not really true. It's going to, it could potentially change a few things, a huge amount. Um, and we should pay attention to that and, and, uh, and take advantage of it. But, uh, but it's not the silver bullet to solve every single technology problem. And uh, deep learning, neural networks, Absolutely. issues there, you on board there or what? I think, uh, I think we have a risk of, um, of like, you know, over governing is and slowing innovation down because of, uh, over governing is, is a risk that I think we need to take, uh, take seriously. Like yeah. in the Manhattan Project, like that, that essentially ended World War II, like the, the first test of that technology was 11 days before the first use of the technology um, or something like that. It was some incredibly short period of time. And um, so I think like innovation is messy. And but if we like if every single piece of every single innovation needs to be completely safe, we're not going to go anywhere. Um, so I think we should. We should make it a major uh, focus, but we have to create guardrails that enable people to try and fail. And if some of those trials have a little bit of negative consequence here and there, like let's just pick up the pieces. Uh, because as as a as a as a world, we're going to be better off if we're using this technology to solve real problems. Uh, yeah. And you know, so you you look at like what we can accomplish even like the vaccine stuff, and hopefully this will, will bear itself out, but the progress that we've made as a world in such a short period of time when everybody's motivated and understands that the downside is people dying of COVID, so we better start working on this, tech, this, this, this uh, um, uh, treatment. Uh, we can accomplish amazing things as, as, as uh, technologists and as the world in general, so, but you know, we gotta get motivated to do it, so hopefully regulations won't stop us from being motivated. It's like the book you recommended, uh, Factfulness. I'm about halfway through it now, uh, but yeah. it was definitely interesting. The world has never been better. I know everybody says it's all terrible and everything, and you know, COVID aside, like there's so much progress that's happened. I'm a, I'm very much an optimist, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, the, the everything will continue to bear that out once we get through some of these crazy short-term bumps. Well, that's a great place, I think, to leave it on. Uh, Bill, thanks so much as always for joining. Great, thanks. And we're back. So, Tony, it's actually really windy where you are. Sometimes uh, I can hear the, the wind coming through. So why don't you explain uh, your uh, environmental situation right now? Well, it's funny. When I recorded with Bill Murphy, I was in my pool room. And so I, I, for anybody who's seen, like, I have probably about a dozen or actually, no, I think it's about 18 different country and state flags in my uh, pool room. 
and uh, it's a garage. It's not a pool. I have a pool table in my garage. I have a garage, which <laughs> Bill was really shocked by. He's like, you live in Williamsburg and you have a garage? I was like, I swear to God, I just got the greatest deal in the history of deals. But Alice is uh, my uh, my longtime girlfriend. And that room's right next door and I can get loud and vociferous. So, mm. you know, I, uh, I decide to come outside. So I apologize if the sound is a little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, I, I think it, it's actually fine, but it's, I'm just trying to pick on you anyway. <laughs> what else is new? Let's talk a little bit about the elephant in the room. You started writing for Waters 11 years ago. This month on October 1st. Wow. I wanted to talk to you a, about um, your opinion piece or your column, basically, that you publish every Sunday. The last one, you talked about Refinitiv and you uh, kind of brought up this idea of a, a reckless uh, you know, speculation of them sure. competing, basically, with Symphony. Maybe give a, a two feet view. No, two feet, 20 feet view. <laughs> It's twenty thousand foot view, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm nailing this today. Jesus, <laughs> I'm the one who has a drink here right now. Um, Maybe so that's yeah. why I don't have a drink. <laughs> so, yo, there, so Refinitive. If Max uh, wrote the first story about it, um, they have a new uh, platform called Workspace. They call it a kind of a workflow and collaboration platform. Um, it will eventually, essentially, usurp. Icon, the, the training platform, and Thompson One. It's an interesting move because, like I said, when I started writing 11 years ago, you know, it was always Bloomberg versus uh, Thompson Reuters. Obviously, we're just going to call. I know that Rafanda bought a piece of Thompson Reuters, but we'll just call it a one to one. Uh, but yeah, so Rafanda is going with this new platform, collaboration and workflow. You know, Icon will eventually be sunset, though there's no timetable on that. So that could be a very long time. And who knows, they can choose to change course potentially. So what does this all really mean? I think it or it sounds a little bit to me like they are kind of competing in a space that Symphony's kind of competing in. You know, Symphony's really trying to build out its offering to become this kind of real an end-to-end workflow collaboration tool. All right, Refandive says, well, and I think that Refandive and Symphony are have partnered in the past and stuff like that. So I, I could just, like I said, this is just kind of where I'm seeing things going. But mm-hmm. Refandive being like, you know what, we are the data giant. We're data specialists. So rather than this communications platform doing this for you, we have communications through, you know, it's, it's icon chat, stuff like that. We have all this workflow. We have all this uh, uh, collaboration tools already in place. So that's kind of where I could see it going. Maybe there is more of an exchange play here, though LSEG hasn't officially bought uh, Refandive yet. Um, and, you know, there are regulators, uh, the regulators in Europe are, it sounds like they're saber rattling a little bit. Um, but that's kind of how I see this. I don't know. Read my comments. Free to read, too. It's in front of the paywall if you, if you want all my thoughts on that. Yep, and we'll link it uh, here, too. Um, but... I, I want to tackle it from a slightly different point of view. I mean, like, since since they're going to be, uh, I guess, potentially, we're, we're just speculating here, right? So since they could potentially compete with each other directly, 
could Symphony, could someone, someone else in, in the industry, uh, you know, want to, you know, make a, a buy on Symphony and, and then in some way compete against Refinitiv instead of, you know, instead of leaving yeah. Symphony on its own and, you know, it's, it's from a kind of like a startup uh, yeah. Communication tool that's coming into uh, uh, workflow um, space here, and and they've also just you know uh, starting to get into the KYC space as well. Which, by the way, Refinitiv is already very, quite established in. You know, could there be a possibility that it could be attractive enough for someone else to say, okay, I think I'm big enough to, and I have I'm big enough to perhaps compete directly against Refinitiv. Yeah. Um, I have the resources and the headcount that that. You know, be, would be able to absorb uh, Symphony and build it up to the point where, really, uh, with this, just two of them competing there. What do you think? Sure, sure. So, you know, my thoughts there are: so Symphony Synovate, their annual big conference, is actually going to happen tomorrow. When so we're recording this on a Wednesday, we'll be publishing this on a Thursday. Uh, Synovate will already have started, and usually they have some big announcements at this event. Isn't it Finovate? All right, so this oh, we're going to have that. an awkward cut here. Wishen <laughs> corrected me, and I don't know why she felt the need to. She was like, "Should we cut this out?" I was like, "Oh, it's fin- it's apparently Sym- Symphony Finovate, not Synovate." <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> it's 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 midnight. It's literally midnight my time, and I called it. You know it. what? I was trying to save your face, okay? But it's okay. <laughs> I'm just going to call. Well, you we would have to go back in time to, to replace uh, what I had said already. Anyway. <laughs> So they usually have some big announcements there. Again, this is just speculation on my part. Though we are going to be talking with Symphony in the future. I would not be surprised. Symphony's trying to build out its platform, though. I think you listen to some people talk about it and how useful that tool is from a collaboration platform. It's not just appropriate for... Uh, financial services. I think that there are other industries, other sectors that they would love to be able to expand into. And that's why they're adding something like, you know, KYC, some of these other kind of ancillary products. So certainly Symphony is a company that could be bought in the future where I think that it more likely would be is they actually look to expand outside of financial services. I don't know. Again, that's just all speculation. I have no, you know, there's nothing right now that says that this, this, there's a reason for this to happen. Mm, okay. So then it could be that, yeah, I guess, I guess that would, that would change the game for them entirely and their objective in, and in, in how they are, uh, I guess their vision <laughs> uh, or their sure. reason for existence. Uh, um if they would and, and think about wait, you know, just to, just throw one thing. So Brad Levy, who's an incredibly smart guy, came over from IHS Market. I've always enjoyed my conversations like that I've had with Brad when he was there. IHS Market is a perfect example of a company that they're not just. I mean, Market was the financial service, but IHS was this huge. They have all different sorts of uh, business uh, verticals, right? Mm. Bringing on Brad Levy, I don't think that that's just a coincidence there. You know, I think that he's got some real experience. So first of all, he had the KYC experience. So he helped them to build out that vertical. Um, and, you know, so I think that there could be that's that's another reason to think that that's their longer term, broader strategy. Mm. 
Oh yeah, I mean that that makes sense if they were to expand to uh, a whole other set of uh, sectors and industries out there, um, and not just rely on the financial services industry, um, which is similar to what uh, some of the companies that we've covered also are also doing. I think uh, previously we talked to, but that's more on the open source um, standpoint. But Finos, right? Finos is looking yeah. to expand into the re potentially retail space, um, trying to tap into uh, China um, and other Asian markets too. I think though that this is a sign of tech in general. So we've we've kind of talked about this loosely, but capital markets tech was it was fintech. It was fintech back in when I started. It didn't mean a startup. It meant financial technology. It meant hmm. technology used by banks and asset managers and exchanges and regulators. Then fintech kind of got usurped to mean, you know, this is for startups. But if you think about technology and where it's going through the use of the cloud, through the use of backend APIs to easily uh, deliver information and through the use of open source, a lot of these tech companies are realizing we don't have to just compete in financial services. We don't have to just be fintech. That can be a vertical toward a broader strategy. And similarly, technologies that we see very useful in other sectors, you know, kind of coming into capital markets technology, you know, whether that's, you know, kind of some of the healthcare, um, uh, data matching kind of stuff. Yeah. Cybersecurity is, is obviously a natural that gets shared around a lot, stuff like that. So it's no longer, you know, we're a bank. I, I think Bill even just said it on the podcast, you know, banks were, we're going to build it soup to nuts, right? Now it's, we're going to make sure that, you know, we can find technology vendors that have specialization, but not necessarily financial specialization. We bring the financial knowledge, you bring the cutting edge technology, that kind of thing there too. So it works both ways, I think. Okay. I guess it's just something that we, I mean, well, we're definitely going to be keeping our eye out on this. These type of movements uh, in the industry, whether, yeah, it's out to the broader uh, sectors in the sectors in the market or whether it's them uh, all coming into the financial services industry. It's like a blending. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a blending lines are blurring, everything. man. Lines are blurring. <laughs> so it's a good thing and it creates new challenges. So we'll be, we'll be writing all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I think we should stop here. If not, we can, I guess, go on till the cows come home. <laughs> well, it's midnight. It's after midnight here, so the cows will be coming home soon. So. <laughs> okay, well, till next week. Take care. Have a good week.